Well, good afternoon, and uh, welcome to our session on uh, global dental health and intersection of dental missions. It's been uh, been my privilege to, uh, as I've walked with uh, the Lord over, over these years, and God did a work in my life to uh, just take me on a very interesting uh, career path uh, beyond what I had established in my own thinking of a private practice, and as God worked in my life, I had the privilege then of, after 10 years in a uh, private practice in Ohio, of, of serving the Lord in Africa for the next uh, 12 and a half years uh, with my family and uh, working in dentistry there and hospital development. And, and then about a year and a half ago, uh, God brought us back uh, to the United States uh, with uh, Christian Medical and Dental Associations into the role of, of dental director there. And so it's been exciting to, from that seat, um, seeing what God's doing in, in the lives of our dentists and our students uh, across the country. God's doing great things. As we look at uh, uh, global health uh, across the country or across the uh, world, uh, it's, it's just amazing the opportunities and the changes that are happening there. But, but what that presents for opportunities uh, for dental missions is just fantastic. And so I want to share a couple of slides with you and just kind of introduce this concept because one of the dangers of of, of this age that we live in is that we're just flooded with media. Um, you know, the pictures like, like this that we see coming, you know, across our screens. And, and uh, um, one of the things I've noticed, you know, since getting back is the amount of appeals that I get um, as, as a dentist back in the United States for opportunities to come alongside and, and help uh, and the needs. And we see this. And, and some of you have, have, have been on trips and you've had opportunities to take pictures like these on that, on that. And, and the first thing I want to introduce is, is, is just this concept of, of, you know, becoming numb and losing our, our sense of compassion uh, for people that are, that are hurting around the world. Uh, an author coined this term, chronic pseudo-compassion fatigue. He says, it's the result of too much almost giving and too much almost Serving, You know, we're inundated by the media, our hearts are turned, and we think, man, you know, God prompts us or whatever that is, I could go do something. I, you know, and we almost do that, and we do that again and again and again. And, and working in Africa for those number of years, uh, I worked with some, some missionaries that suffered from true compassion fatigue, midwives that are out in the, in the middle of nowhere in the country of Mali, um, delivering babies and, and saving women's lives in that childbirth process who haven't had a vacation in years because they know if they leave, women in the village are going to die. And so those ladies that are out there working like that, they're, they're experiencing real compassion fatigue. They're tired. They can't think straight. They can't, their spiritual life is, is off kilter, and they need a time to, to go and have a spiritual retreat and a physical refreshing. That's true compassion fatigue. But I think in... The states and, and other places of the world, we're in danger of this pseudo-compassion fatigue of almost doing something. And so we want to guard against that. And I want to put that out there. Dave Thompson, in his book, uh, Christian Mercy, Compassion, Proclamation, and Power, talks about this concept and introduces it. And he says there's two reasons that we might not grieve over the suffering of others. The first is the chronic pseudo-compassion fatigue. And the second is that we have a belief that the person actually deserves what they're getting. You know, they're in that situation. They deserve it. We see some examples in history. You know, the early HIV uh, came in. You know, even when the Christian church in many parts of the world, 
you know, there was no compassion uh, for people. We thought that the people are getting what they deserve, and, 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 and that's just the way it's, it's going to play out. We, you know, we see that with the poor in the United States as well uh, plays out. You know, that's what they pull themselves up and, and get going. Uh, they can overcome that, and they do that. And we, certainly we see it in the conflict areas around the world right now with Syria. Um, you know, as we see that interact, complicated uh, issues, you know, um, uh, becomes very difficult. And so I just put this out there just because as we go through and as God's calling you into practice and, and whatever that is, we want to be aware and guard ourselves against becoming cold and losing our sense of compassion. So today we find ourselves here at the GMHC and we're at this intersection of, of global dental health and, and dental mission efforts and, and what does that look like? And let me just start by talking about a little bit about what's happening on the global dental health scene, uh, kind of an update. We've had a very interesting study that's been done and, and released this year, the Global Burden of Oral Conditions. Uh, it compares uh, a bunch of statistics from 1990 and 2010. And, and seeing, you know, what are the advances? What changes are happening? Are the, are the billions and billions of dollars that we're pouring into global health making a difference uh, in the world? And this particular study then extracted the components that, that are oral related and, and looking at the difference that makes. And, and so we're going to look at this global burden of disease study. It's a big study that was done, like I said, 1990, looking at uh, uh, 291 diseases around the world. They categorized those ones that they felt that they had the big effect. And out of the 291, there were three oral diseases uh, that they looked at. They looked at severe tooth loss. That's having less than nine remaining teeth. They looked at untreated dental caries, uh, being able to observe clinically and make that diagnosis. And severe periodontal disease, which they uh, assigned a value of greater than five millimeter pockets or six millimeter attachment loss. What was the number one disease in the entire world as far as prevalence goes in 2010? Any idea? Sure. Top ten diseases, number one, dental caries by over a billion people um, in the world. And we had three of the top ten uh, as far as frequency goes. Severe periodontitis, number six most common disease in the entire world. Untreated caries of deciduous teeth then comes in at number ten. And number 36 is severe tooth loss. And so the prevalence of dental disease around the world, as, as you're well aware, is just tremendous. But the Global Burden Study wasn't really interested in, in just prevalence. Prevalence was one of those things that uh, they wanted to, to measure and, and to know. But what they were really interested in was what is the impact of that disease on life? How does that disease affect how we live? You know, so how many years... Uh, is the disease causing early death? How is it affecting our life and, and the ability to go on? And so they came up with this. I'm just going to throw it out there. We don't have to really, we're not going to talk a lot about this, but they, they put it in terms of disability-adjusted life years. That is, how does the disease affect what we're doing? So the years lost early against, plus all the years that you lived with disability kind of comes with this formula so that they can compare across diseases. You know, and clearly, you know, decay on, on a first molar is not equivalent burden of disease as what heart disease or, or something else would be. And so this is your top ten uh, burden across the United States, ischemic heart disease, lower respiratory, and on down. So where do you think? 291 disease, where does dental fit? Bottom third? Dental's still in the top third. 
291, severe periodontal disease at 77, and untreated caries at 8. Because as people self-report, these are things that are limiting uh, their lifestyle and, and causing them a burden in life as they can't de- uh, find treatment and opportunities um, to take care of that thing. So the Global Burden of Disease Study shows us a couple of things. Uh, it shows that the billions of dollars, Gates Foundations, others uh, that are putting in uh, to reduce uh, some of the communicable disease and, and the burden of, of infant mortality and maternal mortality are, are having an effect. Those infectious diseases and those things are on the decrease. Uh, at the same time, there is a corresponding increase in non-communicable diseases. Cancers and heart disease are going up slightly. But since 1970, we've had an increase of 10 years of life expectancy. Uh, around the world, and, and so a good thing. And overall, the burden, uh, uh, global burden of disease around the world has been decreased in, in the 20 years. But then they had this statement. However, there was a 20% increase in the global burden of oral conditions uh, around the world in that same period of time. And so while disease is beginning to go down, uh, oral disease and oral burdens are, are continuing uh, to be up on, on the rise. In fact, the uh, World Health Organization says that, you know, if they, as they look at the entire picture of global health around the world, one of the most neglected areas is the area that most people are affected by, and, and that's oral disease and, and oral problems. And, and so I think, you know, you know if, if they're not taking care of it, who's responsible for beginning to address the oral conditions, and I think that becomes then our responsibility as oral health care professionals to begin to look at that and to see how can we begin to have a long-term impact on the dental care uh, and the populations around the world. I want to just touch on a couple of other statistics on a couple of diseases that, that, that affect us. These weren't included in the study, uh, but, to, but to know just in the United States, 30,000 new cases of oral cancer a year. Uh, you guys know that, you know, the uh, early treatment uh, got much better results and uh, the combination of, of alcohol and, and oral tobacco and tobacco use is big. But I look at that, at that last point, and that's the, the difference in five-year survival rate among the wealthy uh, in India and Mumbai particularly, uh, only 30% uh, five-year survival rate, whereas in the U.S. Uh, among that same wealth level, uh, big 70% uh, survival rate, um, five terms. So we're seeing, beginning to see some discrepancies in where uh, that care is and, and uh, where the disease is identified and the treatment that's going on there. Another, uh, here's, here's some of the prevalence rate. Uh, looking at, at the areas in, in the darker there in red, uh, those are high incidence uh, of cancer uh, among males, uh, different places around the world. You can see that each of the continents has has areas that are high incident for oral cancer and, and those that are less affected. And uh, you can pick out your favorite country there and, and see. And it's just a reminder, you know, as, as we're going on these trips, are we screening, you know, for oral cancer? Are we simply focused on, you know, getting in and extracting that, that tooth that needs to be extracted or whatever procedure we're doing? Or are we, are we doing an exam that's, that's looking at the possibilities of identifying uh, different places, and this is the incident for women around the world, much less uh, prevalence uh, of oral cancer, as many of you know, uh, in the studies there. I also want to in- talk just a little bit about another disease that, depending on where in the world that you're going and, and working, uh, might be something that, that you come across on, you, on your trips, and that's uh, NOMA. 
it's a, just a tremendous uh, disease that, that affects uh, uh, young kids primarily uh, that are very living impoverished areas. Usually they're very malnourished, and usually there's some type of disease that offsets that, usually a measles infection, something high fever, chicken pox, or something like that. And then generally on the, it, it begins on the gum, and it's just like a, a necrotic area on the tissue uh, that begins and begins to expand. Because these kids are malnourished and in bad shape, it just becomes gangrenous and begins to affect it and, and building a hole there. Estimate 140,000 cases a year. Uh, it comes from the Greek to devour, and that's what this disease does uh, on, on these kids. It just begins to have tremendous effect. And without treatment, 80-90% are going uh, to die. As we look at uh, in, a- in Africa, where cases have been reported, uh, we see a, a number of, of high predilection areas here and in, in certain areas within Asia. But right here is Gabon. When I first went to Africa for three years, we uh, built a dental clinic there and a three-year dental training program. And I'll never forget the first day that, that, that a mother came into our dental clinic uh, she'd been taking a three-hour taxi ride to, to come to our clinic. Her child was very sick. Um, she assumed from a, a, a dental infection a tooth, and, and she had heard about this new dental clinic uh, that had begun at the hospital there. So she brought her son in uh, to be seen, to have a tooth extracted, and planned to get back on the taxi and, and leave that same day. As a, uh, I called, it was called over to, to examine the boy, it was, you know, the odor from from gangrenous tissue was was and was just very strong and I you know I hadn't we studied this in, in pathology I think there was a board question uh, on, on, the, on national board exams but for whatever reason I, I instantly knew what it was uh, and I knew that that mother wasn't going to be getting on the taxi uh, that afternoon to, to be home at our hospital in Gabon uh, they'd never had a child survive uh, they had come to the hospital with a diagnosis of noma they were too far gone. But this young boy, we were able to, to get in, get over to surgery, uh, get him IV, get it uh, debrided, uh, and he was hospitalized for, for a number of weeks. But he was the first boy of all of the next patients that came in that, that survived uh, NOMA. And, and, and the reason that I, I think is because now there was a dental clinic uh, there. And so for the first time, you know, they think initially it's, it's a dental problem. Um, and so they're able to come to a place where we're able to diagnose it and, and, uh, and get it treated a little bit earlier. But if you're operating, working in, in some of these areas, this is one of those uh, cases that, that might show up on, on your doorstep, and, and you need to know what, what you need to do, and you need to refer and, and get some help because these kids are, are really sick. HIV-AIDS, uh, just a, a quick update on, on some of the stats uh, where we're at now. As you know, 40 to 50 percent uh, have oral manifestation of disease, and, and so we want to be looking out for that. Uh, globally, we have 34 million around the world in 2011 that were infected uh, with HIV, about a tenth of them uh, being children under the age of 15. And we're seeing uh, currently about 2.5 million infections a year. New ones, 7,000 people a day becoming infected with HIV. But the good news is it's a big reduction in the last 10 years. That's uh, 22% less uh, that are becoming in, infected, and we're seeing uh, more people live each day. We're seeing uh, 4,000 out of those 7,000 uh, going on antiretrovirals uh, in a, any given uh, day. 
And uh, so as we're increasing that treatment, we're seeing people live longer. Uh, so it's patients that we're going to be seeing more readily um, as we come there. But good news, great opportunities to share and, and, uh, and show compassion uh, with these patients. I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. And if you were here last night, uh, um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the book, you know, When Helping Hurts. So the author was there and, and looking at that. And I just want to introduce this uh, risk factor model uh, to you because it's, it's complicated. You know, we as dentists, we want to go provide a solution. And, and, you know, sometimes we can do that in our practice. But there's so many factors that, that affect decision-making, oral hygiene, all of those things that simply going in and treating oftentimes isn't enough. And so if we can understand this just briefly, it's just been just a couple of minutes, you know, we want these outcomes uh, of health. And what we want is dental health uh, in our particular care. You know, we want spiritual health, and, and, and spiritual health isn't even on here. Um, so this is developed through, through WHO and, and what they're doing. And so we understand there's a whole other component uh, that, that's involved in this. But as we look at this, on the left side, uh, we have three factors, and each of those have a number of factors under them that affect how people view life, how they approach, and how they can access dental care. So the first is simply, you know, the health system and availability. You know, are there opportunities to be treated in the areas where we're working, um, do patients have a place to go? Uh, is that place that they go, is it preventative? Is it simply curative uh, treatment? But the other thing then is, is the sociocultural risk factors. You know, how does that society view the care? Um, so some places you go, you can have an outstanding hospital, an outstanding clinic, and this was the case in, in Gabon when we were down there. We had a fantastic hospital, but we were in a very animistic place. And so a lot of our patients showed up in the dental clinic as a last resort. They'd already been to the, to the witch doctor. They'd already had cow dung, you know, packed in their, in their socket for, for two weeks and gunpowder placed in there and spells placed on them. And, and so with half of their mandibles sloughing off, they finally show up in the dental clinic for, you know, for treatment. And, and that's a complicated factor because it, because it plays in here. Um, yeah, we have access to care. We have all of that. We can take care of those things when they're there. But all of these other factors are now playing into their decision-making as to when and how they, they begin to seek treatment. And then, of course, environmental factors, uh, being able to clean water and, and all, of, all of those factors. And so I want to spend just a couple of minutes and, and, and look at a couple of these uh, uh, things that we go through. I want to look at a little bit about what's happening around the world with availability to care. Um, looking at some of those statistics, where, how many dentists are there, uh, where are they located, um, that type of thing. And then I want to come down here uh, just briefly and look at how some of the risk factors are affecting uh, where we're at on, on health care. So let's look at availability of, of health service. Anybody know how many dentists there are in the world? What they tell us, 1,128,628. Uh, in 2009, dentists located around the world, and, and here's how they, they, they break them down. About 150,000 uh, operating in North America. Uh, we've got uh, South America, 289,000. Uh, Europe, another big number, uh, 342,000. So we can already begin to see that, you know, distribution. Here's Africa right over here. 
got North Africa with about 2,500, but all of the rest, Sub-Saharan Africa, 11,000 dentists for the entire rest of, of that continent. And, and so as we, as we look at, at the breakdown, clearly um, distribution is, is a little bit skewed as far as uh, uh, what they're looking. So here's some, some concrete numbers. Croatia, one dentist for every 560 people. United States, one dentist for every 2,200 people. China, one for every 82,000 people. And Ethiopia, one dentist for every 1.3 million. And so, you, you know, it's, it's clear that, uh, you know, all the education, all, all of that, uh, you know, if, if patients have a problem certain places, they're just not going to be able to find a, a provider, anybody that's able to do that. And so they have a breakdown. So whatever country it is that you're looking at, you can kind of go in and understand uh, what those ratios are, where they're working. We put some of them on this graph, but the, they're graphed and available um, to, to find out what the, what the WHO is reporting. And, and what we found is, you know, these numbers aren't completely accurate because uh, some of them are self-reporting and, and trying to get through it. But we can see that uh, there's great discrepancies in, in the availability of, uh, of dental uh, access around the world. But not only is there the distribution around the world, but it's, it's where they are located then uh, within those countries, right? So you've got urban and you've got your, your rural distribution. And we can see those ratios are... Our big Gabon again, uh, we lived there for, for three years, and the reason we went there and started a dental clinic and, and training was because outside of the capital of Gabon, there were no dentists at all in the southern part of the country. Nobody to treat, nobody to, uh, to take care of that. And, and so looking at, at all of these, uh, it, it's pretty uh, routine. A lot of, lot of all those in purple, no, no rural dentists uh, working at all, and, and you can see the ratios uh, uh, and some of the other countries there. India, 90% of the doctors are located in, in the urban settings, but 72% of the population is, is still living in rural settings. And you go through, and, and Kenya, uh, Nigeria, same thing. But you know what? It's, it's no different here in the United States. Uh, you know, here's the United States. Out of our 2,050 rural counties, 1,221 are designated dental health professional shortage areas. Uh, by the U.S. government. Um, and, and, and we all understand why. It's the economics of, of the situation. How do, you, how do you graduate from dental school with $250,000 in debt and, and work among the poor? You know, how does that, how do you pay off that debt? How do you, how do you service that? How do you buy a practice? How do, you, how do you take care of your family in doing that? So economics uh, drives a lot of that, but we're not so different here in the United States than they are, for instance, in Kenya. Uh, as far as, as where we're setting up and, and the work that we're doing. So how does it play out in dental treatment? This is a, an, an interesting uh, graph. So if we go to uh, our wealthier high-income countries, uh, these are decayed, missing, and, and filled teeth among 11 to 14-year-olds. And uh, so if we look at, at, at all of those decayed, missing, and filled teeth in high-income countries, 53% of those have fillings in it of the decayed, missing, and filled. Uh, 3% of those teeth have been extracted, and 44% are untreated. So even in high-income countries, we've still got a long way to go. We've got 44% of teeth at, at any given moment that, uh, among these kids that, that aren't filled. But compare that to the low income. So here's uh, all the decayed, missing, and filled that they've done. They've looked at only 2% of, of those teeth are filled. Um, 
95% are, are, are unfilled. So clearly, uh, they're not being able to see Dennis, and, and the extraction rate, 3% on, on each of those is, is the same. And, and so it means that, that, that kids in that age room aren't getting access to, to dental care. Uh, they're not able to get in, not able to have fillings done, and, and have their teeth restored. So let's look at, at an interesting graph as far as what's been happening. 19, whoop, sorry, 1981 was interesting here. This is, the lower graph here is uh, developing countries, low-income countries. This graph on, on the top is uh, developed countries, and this is just the average of it. So back in 1981, developed countries decayed, missing, and filled teeth rate, four and a half teeth per average for a 12-year-old of decayed, missing, or filled teeth. In the low-income countries, it was just over one. So the caries rate among the developed nations was much, much greater in 1981. Then all of a sudden we see this drop among, a very sharp drop in developed nations of dental decay, and we see the opposite trend now beginning to go up in developing countries. And and what's the reason for those ideas? Fluoride. Fluoride. So we're looking at developing countries, fluoride. What about this? What would cause the great increase here? So it's a, you know it's, it gets now to, the, to that to that risk factor that we're talking about, and you know looking at, at sugar consumption. Uh, these countries over 45 kilograms per person consumption of, of sugar annually. So it's huge. Uh, Gabon, one of the things that, that, I, that I love to do was going out, and, and our hospital was on, in the, at the edge of the jungle. I mean, this was like least explored places in, in, the, in the world type of thing. And, and I would like to go about 20 minutes on, on a four-wheeler out down this old logging road, and there was a, a little village called Manji uh, sitting back in there. And, and there was a little store run by a Mauritanian guy. He had a family. His family ran stores, and he got stuck because he was the youngest brother out in this village in the middle of nowhere, 10 by 10 room. It had the supplies for the village. Uh, he slept on the floor. He, he prayed five times a day on the floor. And, and, and that was, was his life. He lived there. So I used to go out. We used to drink tea together and, and, and talk about politics and share Christ and, and his religion and, and talk about all of that. But he often didn't have enough supplies. But the th- three things he always had, I call the three C's. He always had Coca-Cola. He always had cookies and he always had candy. And, and, and so, you know, these kids in this village, you know, and so we go back to that graph. You know, what happened was, you know, these guys moved in with stores uh, sometime in that village and bringing Coca-Cola and candy. And you guys have been where you thought you were in the middle of nowhere and somebody shows up with a cold Coke for you and like, oh, well, thank you, you know. And, and so it makes a huge difference. And so we're seeing that, that begin to skyrocket because there's some that's increasing, but there's still no access to care. Uh, still no primary teaching on oral hygiene and all of that. And then here's the other side of it uh, that you mentioned, fluoride. This is in Switzerland. Uh, so they introduced uh, fluoridated water here at this point, took off down fluoridated salt at this point, and boom, just this precipitous drop uh, in, in the caries rate in, in Switzerland. And you can see how high their, their uh, decayed missing and filled was back uh, in, the, in that, uh, was that back in the 60s? Uh, eight teeth per uh, per child at, at that point in time, and so we got these factors all kind of playing together, and 
And so we think, well, you know, we have toothpaste, right, available. We know the effect of uh, fluoridated toothpaste. And in the Netherlands, we're seeing, you know, a big use of a fluoridated toothpaste, Myanmar, um, you know, one-tenth. You know, so if we can get people to use fluoridated toothpaste, you know, could that be the answer? Is that part of the solution uh, for what we can do? And I came across this graph and realizing how difficult, you know, that it is. It's not just a matter of education, Right, it's a matter of cost, and so this is a little bit of complicated graph. So stick with me here. It's it's the days of household expenditure needed to buy a year's supply of fluoride toothpaste. So you take what you're spending an entire year on everything: kids' education, clothes, food, electric bills, all of that, divided by 365. Okay, so to buy a year's worth of toothpaste, it takes. Uh, a tenth uh, of a day's expenditures in the U.S. to buy a whole year's worth of toothpaste. At the far end of this, in Zambia, it would take them 30 days, a whole month's worth of expenditures to buy a year's worth of toothpaste um, in Zambia. And so it's, it's, you know, and you can see all, the, all these in, in between. Senegal, where I lived for four years, it takes them over a week worth of expenditures just to buy toothpaste. And so, you know, are you going to take a, a twelfth of your income and pay that for toothpaste? You know, I, if, that, if that was our cost in the States, I, I don't know that we'd be willing to uh, find the toothpaste would, would, be, would be that high of a priority on our list. And so what we're finding is, you know, huge taxes on, on the importing of, of toothpaste in some of these countries. Burkina Faso uh, is one that's pretty high, but they Zambia with their, and their inflation rate and, and all of that makes toothpaste just completely unaffordable um, doing that. So, you know, risk factors, we're looking, you know, what are solutions? This is, but this is kind of just laying out what's happening uh, around the unit. And then just a couple of trends uh, before we move over to the mission. One of the trends that I'm seeing as I travel in, in different places is the increasing production of dentists around the world. You know, we talked about the rates and, and uh, being very poorly, but in India now, there's 202 dental schools, and they're producing nearly 14,000 dentists a year in India. It went from uh, a ratio of one dentist to 300,000 population. Now it's getting down to close to one dentist for every 10,000. But those dental schools are going to keep, keep producing. Mongolia, I was, I was there uh, this last year, uh, 600 students in their dental school. They got a population of 3 million. They're mostly Mongolian. Um, so it's not going to take too long till. You know, they're going, to be, they're going to have enough dentists uh, for their population and, and, and then some. And I was in Armenia a month ago. Uh, on, on, that, on that graph, uh, the WHO reports one dental school in Armenia. And so I met with some of their dental leaders. There's now eight dental schools in Armenia um, doing that. And they said their ratio currently is one dentist to 600 population, and they're continuing to have eight schools pump out. But the problem is this, that... You know, that, that ratio doesn't necessarily affect health because the same people that can't access, still can't access, even though there's now two or three or four or five times the number of dentists that there were just a number of years ago, that population still has no access and, and there's still barriers to cost um, and, and being able to get in and doing that. Another trend, expatriation of, of dentists. Uh, being trained and, and going, like all of us, you know, to economics dictates uh, where we end up. And so over 3,000 Cuban dentists have been trained in Cuba and are now working in 68 countries around the world. Uh, again, you see the breakdown of uh, a foreign-born dentist in, in a number of countries. Uh, I read one study where there are more Benin dentists, uh, uh, dentists from Benin, 
that are working in France and there are uh, Benin dentists working in Benin um, and doing that. And, and can we fault them? You know, here's the opportunity, economics, taking care of our family, kids get a European education um, and, and, and going for that. But it's a, a trend that we're seeing more and more that as people get trained, um, they're going where, where the opportunities are. And here's another just interesting one for dental schools here in, in, in our own country. Um, the big push on international experiences at dental school. Are you guys doing that, Penn? You know, yeah. Over half of the dental schools now offer the school function, school sanctioned international uh, training programs. And, uh, and uh, 90% of the schools say their kids are going with mission groups and, and different groups that are, that are going around there. And so, why do I bring this up? Top exposure to different cultures, public health, and part of the mission of the school is that we have an opportunity, um, you know, to work with our schools and, and to help lead on some of these trips. Uh, I know Bill takes a number of students, and others of you do working with students, and we have a chance to impact and, and to help schools do this and, and to do it well. When I was in Louisville a month ago, we met with the, with the dean of the dental school there, and so we're talking about uh, possibilities of, of helping them accomplish and meet the goals that they want to uh, do and, and being able to do that well. Um, so the FDI says that, you know, the world is facing a rising oral health care crisis, um, that it's large, and, and especially in developing countries, the need, the need is, is tremendous and the need is great. And we're on this verge of if something doesn't happen, uh, dental care and access to that uh, could get a lot worse. And and so we're here at that, and, and uh, you know, the, got this going on around the world. I know a lot of you are familiar with that. You've experienced it firsthand. Um, the needs are, are greater than ever. They're growing. Um, and so what are the opportunities, and what is happening on the dental mission side of things? And so we want to take just a few minutes and, and begin to look at that, and then uh, maybe have time for some questions and, and, and going on from there. But... On the mission side of things, you know, the environment for dental, for not just for dental missions, but for missions in general is changing uh, drastically. Many mission organizations are, are shifting their focus to commit, uh, complete the Great Commission Fund. They want to go to the least reached places in the world. And so you see the stats there, 2.4 million individuals living in 5,000 unreached people groups with the gospel. Um, they don't have that. And, and so mission groups are saying this is – where we want to put our resources, this is where we're going to focus. And we're saying we're committed to going to the tough places. And one of the ways that, that they're doing that is through an increased emphasis on committed professionals to doing it. The traditional missionary training and all of that aren't able to go to the places that haven't heard the gospel. And so as healthcare professionals, as other professionals, we become the conduit for being able to have access, gain access, and, and to go and to develop relationships and share that gospel. So I see some shifts uh, occurring in, in dental missions uh, as, as we look at that. And the big shift, back, you know, back in the day when my, my dad's a dentist, and I was in practice with him for a number of years before we went to Africa. And, you know, when, when he was young and getting started, he was a big mission supporter. And the way that he supported missions was he gave to full-time missionaries that were going overseas and, and, and living and working there. But you can look at the statistics. In 1965, there was a total of 540 people total from any organization, any profession, any occupation that went on a short-term mission trip. 
1965. In 2010, and they, they know of at least 1.5 million uh, that went on a short-term mission trip of, of, of some sort. And, and so there's a shift is from, from ascending mindset of I want to be a part of what God's doing around the world by sending others and equipping them to do it, uh, to going and doing it ourselves. We want hands-on. We want to participate in in missions. And so a big shift, and we see that Christian Dental Society, uh, World Dental Relief, uh, GHO, local churches, you know, any number. I was talking with uh, uh, Bob Myers at CDS and the number of trips that they're doing. Um, Ron Lamb, I think, is equipping about 400 trips a year, just dental um, trips. So the, the number and the impact uh, that we're having uh, through that is going. And so a real shift uh, that, that's been occurring there. Another shift that I see now that, that's really occurring is this, the shift from, from doing that we're going to go over and do this. We're going to go over and provide the care uh, to we want to go over and equip uh, others, others to do that. And so everything from, from teaching at international universities to uh, changing the way that we're doing uh, short-term missions um, and then changing the way that, that we're doing long-term missions as well. And uh, we'll just look at a couple of, of the examples of the folks that are doing that. Charlie's here, and I know a number of you have been with Empower Approach on, on the work that they're doing. And so rather than just going and, and doing the dentistry for a week, you know, figured out, man, you know, if we equip others to be able to do this or we come back after a week, this continues to go on. And not only that, but the, the folks that we're working with understand the culture uh, have a heart to, to share Christ, and, and so we see a sta- sustainable ministry that begins to evolve. So this is that approach that, that's beginning to show that, that difference uh, at that level. And, and so we're taking it beyond just us, but, but working on training others. Uh, uh, at, at, a, at a different level, then, we have Dr. John, uh, who has gone back uh, to Ethiopia and uh, with uh, World Dental Relief, and, and they've opened a dental training program, and so they have a a program that's going to be ongoing, and they've already graduated a group, and they've got another group going in. He's got another dentist that's come alongside of him now uh, where they're training uh, uh, oral health professionals uh, on an ongoing basis. That's a country with, with a ratio of one dentist for 1.3 million people, uh, if you remember that statistic. And so something like this, it begins to make an impact. And as you share your faith and live that out, and, and you're creating disciples and you're releasing them uh, to go out, uh, pretty exciting stuff to see that ongoing impact. And, and so we're going to see, I think, more opportunities, more things like this where people are, are able to go in and to train. And, and so we're looking at, at training the trainers, you know, working at dental schools internationally, uh, great opportunities to, to come in and get involved at, with, with students and, and to be teaching and, and on faculty and doing that and advanced uh, training programs uh, uh, looking at dental residencies and, 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 and that training. And so one of the things that, that we're looking at and, and, and doing at CMDA, God's just given us a, a vision to see working with dentists in residency programs around the world as training the trainers coming in. As I've been to many of these countries, you know, graduates uh, out of these programs are, are graduating with, with almost no clinical experience. So they've got the paper. You know, they're a dentist. They've got these huge barriers of entry uh, into practice in those countries, so high unemployment and all of that. 
But the idea of what if we went in with, with a residency training program, equipped them clinically uh, to be some of the best dentists, discipled them in that process, and, and allowed them then to pass on the training, go back into their dental schools, train, disciple, and, and work with others. And, and so just uh, at this conference, we're making known that we've gone uh, CMDA with a, a, a community, a Christ community in Memphis, have created a, a dental residency program. Uh, here in the U.S. Uh, to address that. We want to help provide a, a U.S.-based dentists that feel God's calling them uh, into missions, into full-time missions, to, to come for a discipled AEGD program uh, where we're training mission emphasis, international rotations, and all of that, with the hope that God's going to take the folks where he has them uh, to have this impact and continue to teach and to train and and, and Lord willing that we'll begin to see residency programs uh, different places in the world where we're working with, uh, with local uh, dentists there and training and discipling and begin to see this. And so we've got at all these levels that God's beginning to work and, and, and our missions is kind of changing from being the doers or being simply senders to uh, being equippers uh, and disciplers and, and working hand in hand. With, with national partners and working. It's not just an American effort uh, going over to do that, but relying heavily on, on, on working and, and doing that together. And the final thing that, that I see is that we also need to have a shift incorporated uh, to public health dentistry and, and, and training into what we're doing. Uh, in order to make that multifactorial uh, things there, we've got to really get in, understand what the culture is, and, and work with people who understand that culture so that some of those things, uh, those shifts can begin to happen in a way that's meaningful uh, to the populations that we're working with. And, and so great opportunities. I see, man, with, with dentistry emissions, to me, it's an exciting time to be a part of the profession. If God's laying hard on you, there's some place to plug in, whether you're going to send people, whether you're going to go on short term, whether you're going to go long term uh, and doing that. Community health evangelization, we've got teaching opportunities. Uh, we've got working with uh, NGOs and, and, and other groups with, with community health dentistry. Uh, great opportunities when I was working in Senegal uh, for that to, to come along. Boy, if any of you like are entrepreneurial, right here. If you can figure out a way to come up with a low-cost fluoride toothpaste that could be manufactured in-country and then packaged appropriately for the context, you, you change healthcare. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm thinking, man, how can we do this? How can we manufacture that in, in Zambia, right? If we can do that, then we avoid all the taxes, we avoid all that, package it in a way that people can use it. Um, and doing that. You guys been to places where they have those little sticks, you know, in Africa where they chew and, and you know, taxi drivers are cleaning their teeth? You know, what if we somehow impregnated those with fluoride, you know, and got them on the market? I don't, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities that we have uh, uh, for doing that. And then doing research and, and, and publications. You know, all these things together, uh, you know, as we work, as God equips us all differently and, and sends us out and puts calls on our lives. So, uh, to go and, and to do that. So what does God require of us? we got this, this whole opportunities out there. We've got, you know, health, oral health that's, uh, boy, in, in different states and, and, and difficulties. So what is God asking us to do, you know, as, as professionals? What is our role? What is, what is that to do? And a couple of things, you know, that, 
that, that God's showing me is, that, you know, we know this verse, we, we quote it, we like it from Micah. What does God require of us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him? So the first step uh, clearly is, is that we act, we love, and we walk uh, with him in doing that. So we want to make sure that we keep that focus and, and doing that. But the second thing is that we have in mind the things of God, that we have a biblical worldview in what we're doing. You know, there's a lot of good opportunities out there, a lot of good humanitarian things, and, but God's only given us, we don't know how many years, right, that, that we're going to be on this earth and doing this. And we know that what we do here matters for eternity. So what are we doing with those years? You know, Peter thought he knew what was best for Jesus at one point, and he tried to make some suggestions to Jesus. And Jesus said, when he said, get behind me, Satan, he said, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And so as we go forward with these great ideas, do we have in mind the things of God? Are we walking with him and carrying those out, or are we thinking on our own and good things? The other thing is, third, that we deny ourselves and not just deny ourselves things. God comes, pick up your cross, you know, and, and follow me. It's, it's one way to deny yourself a week of vacation and go on a short-term mission trip for a week. That's something. But it's another thing. God's not asking us for a week. He's not asking us for salary. You know, God's saying, I want you. Will you give me you? You know, he did that for me. I gave mission. I thought that's what God wanted me to do. He wanted me to be a sender, so I did that. And God said, eh. He said, and I said, I'll go short term, and I went short term, and God said, yeah. He said, I, I don't need your money, I don't need your time. He said, Jeff, I want the one thing you won't give me, and that's you. And let me determine that pathway. And so God, I think he's saying, you know what, you know, it's not just that we deny ourselves things. God wants us to deny ourselves and, and to follow him. And then the last thing is that we begin. And we've got to start, you know. This verse in Ecclesiastes, you know, we don't know what's going to be successful, but we shouldn't be idle uh, in doing that. You know, when Charlie had this idea and working with the national pastor, you know, to start him, he didn't know if that was going to work. But he moved forward with God and now, what, 12 countries or however many places, you know, that empower his training and people are coming, coming to Christ. You know, when John went to Ethiopia... You know, he went because he was being faithful to what God wanted him to do. And so he went there, and now he got disciple graduates of the first class and another class starting and another dentist coming on board. And, you know, we're praying about this residency program. We feel like God's saying, move and, and do it. And we're looking at all these barriers, all these obstacles, the development of, of all these things. But God says, go, and we need to begin. And so, you know, we find ourselves here at this intersection of, you know, global health and, and, and dental missions. And, man, truthfully, the sky's the limit in, in what we can do if, if we listen and, and follow what, what God wants us to do. What an exciting time, I think, to, to be a part of what we can do. We get to travel. You know, it's no big deal to hop on a plane and get places. And so we have access in, in this day and age that, you know, the apostles, you know, didn't have and, and, and difficulties that we don't have to overcome. And, and so I think, you know, I'm asking God to send a bunch of people, <laughs> you know, Dennis uh, overseas. I'd love to see a bunch of full-time people uh, committed and called to serve and, and to go. And so I think of that statistic I threw up there briefly with, you know, 3,000 Cuban dentists in whatever it was, 58 countries around the world, you know. And these guys are coming out of a communist regime and, um, you know, atheistic and background. 
you know, and they're in 58 countries working. And, and, you know, what if God raised up believers from around the world? I mean, what if we had 3,000 dentists, you know, that are committed believers and disciples and, and, and doing what uh, El Cuba has done in, in place in Dennis. I mean, we just have tremendous impact. So uh, let me just close in prayer, and, and uh, uh, we have, may have time for questions. Father, thanks for your blessings and your call on our lives and for your salvation, Father, that we realize that uh, we are nothing without you, Father, that uh, our poverty is great, and we thank you for interceding in our lives personally. Um, Father, thank you for the passion in this room to serve you, uh, to use dentistry and, and skills that you've given us to do that. Thank you for those that are stepping out faithfully uh, now and in, in walking in faith, and not knowing what the future holds, Father, but trusting you to show it. Commit this to you this time. We thank you for it in, in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know what, we have, what time we've done. Two more minutes. Any, any quick questions? We do have a dental session, I think, scheduled at, at from four to five in here where we'll just have kind of an informal chat session. Yeah, U.S. has, we've opened two, I think, this year or last year. I think there's three or four more scheduled to open in the next three years uh, that are currently on track um, to do that. So we're seeing an increase there. The other thing we're seeing in the U.S. is that uh, schools are increasing their class size. Uh, so a lot of them are going from 50 to 70 to 70 to 100 um, at, the, at the dental schools. Good. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, come back at, and we'll have some informal time together at uh, 4 o'clock. Thank you.